When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I know that I hung on that windy tree, spear-wounded, nineful nights, given to Odin, myself to myself, on that tree that rose from roots that no man ever knows. They gave me neither bread nor drink from horn. I peered down below. I clutched the runes. Screaming, I grabbed them and sank back. Now that comes from a poem that was written between the ninth, or written down between the ninth and perhaps eleventh century, and it is about Odin's great self-sacrifice. It's from a much longer poem called the Havamal, which is roughly translated as the sayings of the elder one or the wise one, a huge collection of sayings that are attributed to Odin. And perhaps there are people out there, other than uh, my brother, who also recognize the music that you just heard as being uh, the music from one of the great video games ever made, 1987's Fantasy Star from, uh, on the Sega Master System. And that music comes from the part where you're wandering around uh, with your party and you suddenly meet someone new who's going to wander around with you. And the new person who is added to your party, at least in the American version of the game, of the game, uh, has the name Odin. And that is the first place that I ever came across the name Odin. I didn't realize that every Wednesday I was crossing, uh, coming across the name Odin. But uh, for a long time, I just assumed uh, Odin was the name of this guy in this game. And then in high school, uh, it was freshman year history class, we all had to do a report on a country. We had to choose a country and do a report. And I thought that I was being cute and I really didn't want to do this. So I tried to find the smallest country that I could do a report on. I thought of Monaco, I thought of Switzerland, and I finally settled on Iceland. And still thinking that I was being pretty cute, I finally looked into all of it. I I uh, fired up the Apple IIc that we had at home and the Grolier's Electronic Encyclopedia, the CD-ROM that we had of that, and I began to look at the history of Iceland, and I suddenly realized, uh, or I, I suddenly was introduced to Norse mythology, and it just uh, blew my head off. Um, it was one of those incredible moments, and that's when I realized that Odin was not just the guy in the video game, uh, that Odin had a vast and rich history. And I'm pretty sure that even back then, I came across the bit of poetry from the Havamal that I just read to you. Uh, that is the power of poetry, isn't it? You, you, uh, you become attached to it and amazed by it, 
and you want to hold on to it before you really even know what quite is going on. Uh, the language itself and the imagery uh, prompts you to look into it further. And that is what we are going to do tonight in what I think will be one of my longest episodes on this podcast. Uh, for the first hour or so, we will talk about this passage and another story about Odin when he steals the mead of poetry. And this first hour will be devoted to Odin as a poet or as a god of poetry and how that linked him quite effortlessly in the Norse mind with uh, his identification with warfare uh, and the dead and self-sacrifice. The second part will deal specifically with the warfare, death, and self-sacrifice aspect, Odin's more grim, um, grim identity. And then the third part will deal with what we can learn, or my favorite passages at least, what we can learn about what Odin meant to people throughout history, how far back worship of him might go. And if you'd rather only hear one or another of these parts, check out the post description and I will put a timestamp to where these different sections begin. And depending on whether or not ads are running on these episodes when you hear them, that is why it says about one hour and 20 minutes in. It's always going to be about because of the ads. I never know when they're going to run. But since this is going to be a long episode and a busy one, let's just get right down to it and see what we can learn about Odin. So it seems like a good idea to have a working definition of Odin as we begin. So keep these things in mind. These come from a handful of passages uh, about Odin. He is the chief god of Eddic mythology and the most versatile of all the gods. He is the father of the gods, the god of poetry, the god of the dead, of war, of magic, of runes, of ecstasy. And the numerous names for Odin in Old Norse literature exemplify his diversity. Odin's attributes are his spear, Gungnir, his blindness in one eye, his hat and his cloak. All of these belong to his stereotypical appearance, as shown in the 13th and 14th centuries, two texts from modern times. Another, much older attribute is Odin's ring, Dropnir, from which every nine nights another eight equally heavy rings drips. Odin has two ravens, Hugin and Munin, who are likewise firmly established attributes from the end of the Migration Age onwards, as illustrations on uh, jewelry and picture stones prove. The two ravens fly over the whole world and return before breakfast, bringing Odin news of many things. This is his version, I suppose, of waking up and uh, getting the newspaper. Uh, Odin's eight-legged horse, Sleipnir, is also mentioned quite early in Old Norse literature. And despite his position as chief god, Odin, however, is the hero 
of far fewer mythical adventures than Thor, and there are several accounts of Odin proving his immense knowledge. That seems to be, if he goes on adventures, it seems to be adventures to prove his knowledge. And as we'll see, there might be a very good reason why people are hesitant to tell stories about Odin, even if they do think that he is important. So if we wonder why Odin had so many names, and we remember that I just read that he is the most versatile of gods, one reason seems to be that he just took over the functions of other gods. He sort of subsumed them. You think of how that this happens as well in ancient Egypt, where a god takes on the attributes of other gods as they become more and more important in the pantheon. And it's also assumed, uh, as one writer says, that various peoples whose chief god was originally other than Odin later came to believe in Odin and just gave the attributes of whatever their chief god had happened to be back to Odin. And one scholar says that etymologically Odin's name meant something like the leader of the possessed. In Viking and medieval Scandinavia, few could have missed the connection with the word older, which could mean either poetry and frenzy, and the frenzy could mean either the frenzy or ecstasy associated with composing poetry, or the frenzy of the berserks, the frenzy of war and of warriors. And those two things are associated quite easily with Odin and aren't seen to be contradicting one another, or that connection is not seen to be strange back in the Norse times. Odin has a great many alternate names. We've mentioned upwards of 170 and more. And one reason for this is that he takes a different name in virtually each of the myths, and he often travels in disguise. He's, also, he's known as a wanderer and someone who goes about in disguise. But since he is also the god of poetry, all of these names is itself a kind of flowering or exaggeration or abundance of what poetry can do as well. So if we go back to the passage that I began with, those stanzas from the Havamal, we can begin to get a picture of Odin from around the year 1000 or so and the centuries just before and just after. If we get our dates down here, the Havamal is a poem that is found in the Codex Regius, a manuscript uh, of poetry that we now just call the Poetic Edda, and was believed to have been collected around the year 1270. However, the material that goes into all of the poems found in the Codex Regius in the Poetic Edda come from centuries earlier, and in the case of the Havamal, it can go as far back as the 9th century. And as we know, the Havamal is the second poem in the Poetic Edda. And the first poem in the book is the poem that I've already devoted two episodes to, the Voluspa, which tells the story of the world from creation to Ragnarok, and itself is written as a performance by a seeress, by a female prophet, you might say, who is dedicating her performance, or even performing it in front of Odin. That is sort of the visualization that you get. Now, the Havamal is 164 stanzas of just really weird stuff. The, the word you get uh, in descriptions of the Havamal is gnomic. They're little puzzles. 
Um, you might even imagine them as being uh, Old English riddles, but they're not quite even that either. They're sort of visionary bits of old stories and things that perhaps we don't have the full context for, or perhaps there never was a full context to them. And the other word that you hear uh, when people are describing the Havamal is accretion. So the idea is, is that at some point, uh, a batch of sayings or a batch of little stories were attributed to Odin himself. And you have someone or a group, perhaps, of skalds or bards or poets uh, wandering around with sort of this satchel in their mind, this collection of sayings or of little poems, little bits of visions. And over time, over centuries, uh, more sayings become attached to this collection, to where you have what you have now, 164 stanzas of really fun, weird stuff. And at least for me, and I guess for, for many others too, the most famous part are stanzas 138 to 145 of the Havamal, and that's what I began this episode with. And it's worth reading the first part uh, of that in a few translations, just so you can see how this is handled. Uh, the one that I will uh, spend the most time with is that by Andy Orchard, and uh, that's the most recent one to come out of the Penguin Classics, and he renders it this way. I know that I hung on that windy tree, spear-wounded, nine full nights, given to Odin, myself to myself, on that tree that rose from roots that no man ever knows. They gave me neither bread nor drink from horn. I peered down below. I clutched the runes. Screaming, I grabbed them and then sank back. Now that same passage translated in the early 20th century, I believe, goes this way. I weened that I hung on the windy tree, hung there for nine nights full nine, with the spear I was wounded, and offered I was to Odin, myself to myself, on that tree that none may ever know, what root beneath it runs. None made me happy with loaf or horn, and there I looked. I took up the runes, shrieking, I took them, and forthwith back I fell. And then in the mid-20th century, there was a guy named Lee Hollander who wanted to put the, uh, the Eddic poems, uh, he wanted to sort of imitate how they sounded in the original, in the Old Norse. And so the English he comes up with uh, is, is tough for people who haven't read the poems in the first place, but they still make a wonderful, strange music. He says, I wot that I hung on the wind-tossed tree all nights of nine, wounded by spear, bespoken to Odin, bespoken myself to myself, upon that tree of which none telleth, from what roots it doth rise. Neither horn they upheld, nor handed me bread. I looked below me, aloud I cried, caught up the runes, caught them up wailing, thence to the ground fell again. And at least with some of this stuff from the Poetic Edda, the uh, trying to make it sound intentionally archaic, this is one of the few 
places where intentional archaism actually sounds pretty good. It seems like a good match to the material. But let's go back to Andy Orchards and read the, the full passage of this self-sacrifice and then see what uh, others have said about it. Um, I know that I hung on that windy tree, spear-wounded, nine full nights, given to Odin, myself to myself, on that tree from whose roots that no man ever knows. They gave me neither bread nor drink from horn. I peered down below. I clutched the runes. Screaming, I grabbed them and then sank back. So he's hanging there. He is uh, hanging from the roots or on a tree from whose roots no one ever knows. That's assumed to be Yggdrasil, the world tree. He is not eating or drinking. He's doing the good old ascetic exercise. He is fasting to uh, get deeper into this spiritual visionary experience. And what is he doing this for? He is clutching the runes. He is trying to get at the old spells, the old language. Uh, he's trying to get at wisdom. And it is not a pleasant experience. It's not Buddha sitting beneath the tree uh, and uh, just sort of by simply touching the earth, that, that earth-touching gesture that you see in many statues of the Buddha, of uh, simply by doing that, of doing away with all pain and all temptations. Uh, for Odin, uh, this is uh, a painful experience. I clutched the runes, screaming I grabbed them, and then sank back. And then what happens next? I had nine mighty songs, so he found nine songs from that famed son of Bolthor, Bestla's father. And one swig I snatched of that glorious mead, drained from frenzy stirrer. So he's found, he's sort of, in a way, finding food in the form of songs and poetry in the form of mead and beer uh, in this way. Then I quickened and flourished, sprouted and throve. From a single word, another sprung. From a single deed, another sprung. Runes must you find, and the meaningful symbols, very great symbols, very strong symbols, which the mighty sage stained, and the great powers made, and a rune master cut from among the powers. Odin from the Aesir, and for the elves, dead one. He is called dead one for the elves. Doddler for the dwarfs, Osvid for the giants. These are all the different names he has for the different races of people. He is known as Odin for the Aesir. For the elves, he is called Dead One. For the dwarfs, he is called Doddler. For the giants, he is called Osvid. I have cut some of myself. Do you know how to cut? Do you know how to read? Do you know how to stain? Do you know how to test? Do you know how to invoke? Do you know how to sacrifice? Do you know how to dispatch? Do you know how to slaughter? Better not invoked than too much sacrificed. A gift always looks for a return. Better not dispatched than too much slaughtered. So thund cut before the creation of nations. He rose up when he returned. And there you have it. Uh, that is only stanzas 138 to 145. And you can imagine what it is like. Go find a copy of this book 
and go check out the Havamal, or just find it online. I'm pretty sure, I'm sure it's easy to find there. And read stanzas 1 through 137, and then come to this. And then, without catching your breath, read stanzas 146 to 164. And imagine what it's like to suddenly come upon this, and imagine that everything surrounding it sounds quite a bit like that, and you don't quite know where you are and what you're doing. It reminds me of the first chapter of Ezekiel, which is sort of fenced around by Jewish tradition and the rabbis and Jewish scholars to the point where uh, you have to have a you have to have a, a full-grown beard. You have to be forty years old, and I believe you have to have a family before you are allowed to read the first chapter of Ezekiel, because it's the kind of thing that you can jump into and drown in and never really emerge from. It, it, it is its own rabbit hole. And the stuff about Odin is something very similar to it. And you wonder if other traditions grew up around uh, this, th this kind of poetry as well. And you can see, too, how it is the poetry it is Odin's uh, it is it is Odin's ability to be a poet and to realize that he needs to go for more of it to go for more of the runes to go for more of the stories that leads to his association with magic with sorcery with his associations with the dead he is hanging from the tree and he is sacrificing himself to himself for the sake of poetry and of magic and of the runes. And the whole thing is extremely violent. And the dead, of course, uh, death in the, uh, in the medieval Norse world uh, was not a happy thing um, and was particularly brutal. And so all of that leads into, I think, uh, Odin's uh, associations with warfare, with the afterlife, and with gathering dead warriors to himself for the most violent act of all, the upending and end of the entire world, which ends in a huge battle. But let's see what other scholars have said about what I've just read to you. Uh, these passages come from two great books. The first is Rudolf Simek's Dictionary of Northern Mythology, and the other from uh, a wonderful scholarly name, E.O.G. Turvel Petra, who published a book in around the 1950s or so called uh, Myth and Religion of the North, the Religion of Ancient Scandinavia. And these are just bits and pieces of what they have to say about Odin's sacrifice uh, to himself. Uh, one passage says, the sacrifice Odin has, the sacrifice of Odin has been seen widely as an initiation ceremony and practices of shamans in the Fino-Ugric culture, that is, up in Scandinavia and uh, into Russia around the year 1000 and even before then, and on up to at least the 20th century, these shamans are up there doing these things. Uh, the practices of shamans of, Fino, of the Fino-Ugric cultures have been compared. Initiation is regarded largely as a symbolic death, often followed by the rebirth of the initiate under another name. It is well possible that such ceremonial practices were known to the Norsemen in very early times, but the literary sources give scant evidence of them, even though 
the passage I just read to you as a literary source goes back to at least the ninth century. So you can imagine that stories of it, uh, not written down, go back further and further. And we'll see evidence of that in the very last section of this episode, where I go into the history of Odin, uh, what history and archaeology has to say about Odin. Uh, the myth of Odin seems to represent a real rather than a symbolic death. There is no way to master all of the wisdom of the dead but to die yourself. Odin died, and like Christ, he rose up and came back. We, we may remember the story quoted by James George Fraser in The Golden Bough about an Eskimo shaman of the Bering Strait who burned himself alive expecting to return with greater wisdom. And again, I think of more of the book of Ezekiel, where I believe it's chapters 3, 4, and 5, uh, and, and 2, where, uh, where God makes Ezekiel swallow a scroll, and then he puts Ezekiel through these weird, uh, these weird sort of ascetic exercises, where he is made to lie on one side for 360 days, and lie on another side, or to make models of the city of Jerusalem almost like a child, and then destroy them. Um, he's made to do all of these strange things, and it's the kind of thing that you associate with prophets, with prophecy, and with this kind of spiritual exercise. It's somewhere in the Poetic Edda too, I believe, where it may even be in the, uh, in the Voluspa, where uh, Odin or someone like him is sort of chained up and held over a, a burning cauldron or over a burning fire. These experiences, especially in Hinduism as well, um, of going through experiences of extreme heat or up in the north with uh, the Norse, also of extreme cold. These things become uh, uh, sort of drug experiences without the drugs. You don't need them. Um, your senses and your body going through these intense experiences, do them on their own. And uh, the passage goes on to say, the sacrifice of Odin to himself may thus be seen as the highest conceivable form of sacrifice. In fact, so high that, might, that like many a religious mystery, it surpasses our comprehension. It is the sacrifice, not of king to God, but of God to God, of such a kind as is related in the scriptures of the New Testament to the sacrifice of Christ. Every gift, every sacrifice looks for its reward, however, and we may wonder what Odin achieved by his supreme sacrifice. The answer is given in the verses themselves. Odin won the runes and the secrets and the stories that go with them. He learned nine mighty magic songs and got a drink of the precious mead of poetry. He grew and he prospered and became fruitful, so that one word brought forth another, one deed gave rise to another. In other words, Odin became the master of magic and of secret wisdom, and this can only come through sacrifice of this kind, through approaching or actually experiencing death and coming back, right? Um, now, of course, uh, the idea of a supreme religious figure uh, dying on a tree and being, uh, being stabbed with a spear and all the rest of it, and of crying out uh, 
to many of us that recalls the death of Christ on the cross. This is what uh, the scholars have to say about that. Uh, before his death, Christ cried out in a loud voice, just as Odin cried out as he grasped the runes. The similarity does not end there. The rood tree on which Christ died also is said to have no roots. The tree on which Odin hung from uh, has unknown roots. If the myth of the hanging Odin did not derive from the legend of the dying Christ, the two scenes resembled each other so closely that they came to be confused in popular traditions. And they go on in this book to quote uh, almost a verbatim uh, account, I believe from the Orkneys or maybe from the Shetlands, uh, of something that sounds like what I just read to you about Odin, but then you read further and it's, uh, and it's a retelling of the crucifixion of Christ. Um, but they say, well, we cannot preclude the possibility of Christian influence on the scene described in the Havamal. When we analyze the lines and the details themselves, we realize that nearly every element in the Norse myth can be explained as a part of pagan tradition and even of the cult of Odin. We know, or we're fairly certain, that well before uh, uh, Christianity spread to the north or to Britain and then to Ireland, um, Odin or Woden or Wotan was already associated with a spear and a sacrifice of this kind. Uh, and this final passage here that I'll read uh, about the sacrifice to himself. Uh, Odin's role as the god of sorcery and magic is connected with his acquisition of the art of poetry and his knowledge of the runes. And it says, although the Vanir are especially associated with magic in Nordic mythology, Odin is considered to be the one among the Aesir most versed in magic. In the Havamal, he boasts about his knowledge of magic formulae. And in the second Merseburg charm, Woden heals by magic. And in the Eddic uh, story of Baldur's dreams, he is called the father of the magic chant. Parallels with shamanistic practices in which ec ecstatic states play an essential role may be assumed as a result both of Odin's acquisition of runic knowledge and poetic art and his particular kind of magic. Ecstatic states are also an integral part of Odin's cult according to our sources. This ecstatic fury which manifests itself in Odin's warriors such as the berserks as well as the cultic traditions still reflected in the concepts of the wild hunt is an essential factor of Odin's being and points to shamanistic origins of the gods. But there are other stories of how Odin got his wisdom. The other version, or maybe this is just where he got uh, additional wisdom. One of them comes from the prose Edda, the Gilfaginning. And, uh, and this is what it says from the Gilfaginning. It says, um, under the root that goes to the frost giants is the well of Mimir. Uh, wisdom and intelligence are hidden there, and Mimir is the name of the well's owner. He is full of wisdom because he drinks from the well of the Gjallarhorn. Allfather, or Odin, went to this place, went to the horn and to the tree and to the well, and asked for one drink from the well, but he did not get this until he gave one of his eyes as a pledge. As it says in the Voluspa, 
Odin, I know well where you hid the eye in that famous well of Mimir. Each morning Mimir drinks mead from Valfather's pledge. Do you know now or what? And if you want the story of Mimir, you have to go to another book. And this is one of my favorite passages about Odin. And this comes from a later source, from, uh, from Snorri Sturluson's Heimskringla, the saga of the Yinglings. And they're talking about a war, and suddenly the well and the tree and, and the, the sacrifice of an eye is all given up. And Mimir is imagined as a prisoner of war in this version of the story. And it is said that uh, Mimir is beheaded. And the head is sent to the Aesir. Odin took the head and embalmed it with herbs so that it would not rot. And he spoke charms over it, giving the head magic power so that it would answer him and tell him many occult, many hidden things. And I love that that it's just Odin sort of walking around with an embalmed head, and uh, this is what happens. In the, uh, later on, only a page or so later in the saga of the Yinglings, there's, there are these two passages, and these are some of the most detailed passages we have about Odin's character, and you see again the mixture of poetry, magic, and violence and warfare in this. And it's significant that this is a late passage uh, a late source, because this is Snorri Sturluson sort of gathering what he knows from various places. And this is a gathering that just has not happened before. Um, so this would have been, Snorri Sturluson's years are 1179 to 1271. So what would you say, 1230s to 1270s perhaps is when he's writing this. Um, and this is what it says about Odin here. Um, it is said with truth that when Father Odin came to the Northlands and the DR with him, they introduced and taught the skills practiced by men for a long time afterwards. So Odin is imagined as a sort of culture hero where he just brings knowledge of, uh, what would you say, probably building and agriculture and a great deal else. Um, Odin was the most prominent among them all, and from him they learned all the skills because he was the first to know them. Now, as to why he was honored so greatly, the reasons for that are these. He was so handsome and noble to look at when he sat among his friends that it gladdened the hearts of all. But when he was engaged in warfare, he showed his enemies a grim aspect. The reason for this, the reasons for this were that he knew the arts by which he could shift appearance and body any way that he wished. For another matter, he spoke so well and so smoothly that all who heard him believed all he said was true. All he spoke was in rhymes, as is now the case in what is called skullship. He and his temple priests are called songsmiths because that art began with them in the northern lands. Odin was able to cause his enemies to be blind or deaf or fearful in battle, and he could cause their swords to cut no better than wands. His own men went to battle without coats of mail and acted like mad dogs or wolves. They bit their shields and were as strong as bears or bulls. They killed people, and neither fire nor iron affected them. This was called 
berserker rage. And it goes on to say, Odin could shift his appearance. When he did so, his body would lie there as if he were asleep or dead. But he himself, in an instant, in the shape of a bird or animal, a fish or a serpent, went to distant countries on his or other men's errands. He was also able, with mere words, to extinguish fires, to calm the sea, and to turn the winds any way he pleased. He had a ship with which he sailed over the great seas, and it could be folded together like cloth. Odin had with him Mimir's head, which told him many tidings from other worlds, and at times he could call to life dead men out of the ground, or he would sit down under men that were hanged. On this account he was called Lord of Ghouls, or Lord of the Hanged. He had two ravens on whom he had bestowed the gifts of speech. They flew far and wide over the lands and told him many tidings. By these means he became very wise in his lore, and all these skills he taught with those runes and songs, which are called magic songs or charms. For this reason the Aesir are called the workers of magic. Odin had the skill which gives great power, and which he practiced himself. It is called saith, or sorcery. And by means of it he could know the fate of men and predict events that had not yet come to pass. And by it he could also inflict death or misfortune or sickness, or also deprive people of their wits or strength, and give them to others. But this sorcery is attended by such wickedness that manly men considered it shameful to practice, and so it was taught to priestesses. Odin knew all about hidden treasures, and he knew such magic spells as would open for him the earth and mountains and rocks and burial mounds. And with mere words he bound those who dwelled in them, and went in and took what he wanted. Exercising these arts he became very famous. His enemies feared him, and his friends had faith in him and in his power. Most of these skills he taught the sacrificial priests. They were next to him in all manner of knowledge and sorcery. Yet many others learned a great deal of it. Hence, sorcery spread far and wide and continued for a long time. People worshipped Odin and his twelve chieftains, calling them their gods, and believed in them for a long time thereafter. And you get to the end of a passage like that, and you wonder, what can't Odin do? So you uh, remember the very earliest thing I read from the, uh, from the Havamal. And, uh, and then a few centuries later, you have this, where Odin is able to do basically anything he wants. But he is also imagined as being a human being. This is the fancy scholarly word called euhemerization, where the gods of the past are then slowly over time, after they are no longer believed to be divine, are just turned into heroes in the heroic sagas of a people. But even still, even if perhaps he's taken down a peg and no longer considered quite divine, uh, he is able to bilocate. That's an old shamanic trick. You're able to be seen in more than one place at a time. I think of Pythagoras. He was handed this uh, talent as well. Uh, by his later followers, and uh, he can call dead men out of the graves, and in the great story of uh, Baldur's dreams, he goes down to hell 
to uh, where his son is, who has just died, and calls up the, the, a dead seeress out of the grave. And from the seeress, he hears the uh, story of Ragnarok that is about to come. Um, you wonder what he is not able to do. And this is another, another idea of accretion. And it's also another idea of just how weird um, and fragmented our sources are. It's understandable that in retellings or just in scholarly books, you have uh, someone trying to piece all of this together and make it sound smooth. To me, anyway, it's much more interesting to, to do it this way, to see where uh, details are repeated, sometimes in the same work, or details are repeated and expanded upon uh, across works. And uh, you just see how this is how creativity works. This is how religion works. This is how uh, anything that has any creative power uh, works over time. Things are just added and added and added or deleted, edited, rearranged. Um, and it's a wonderful process to see, even if it does make you a bit dizzy. And sort of the, the crowning achievement uh, or, or one of the, the finest stories about Odin comes from the uh, comes from the prose Edda, which was put together by Snorri Sturluson. Again, we we base so much of this on the work and the compilation of Snorri Sturluson in Iceland in the uh, 12th and 13th centuries. And uh, I will end this part of the episode on Odin and poetry with a reading of the story from the Skaldskarpamal, uh, which is a later section in the Prose Edda. And this is the story of Odin and the theft of the mead of poetry. And then we will just read a few comments on it and move on to uh, Odin and warfare, I believe. Let's see what, uh, what it has to say about that. And remember, the, the Skaldskarpamal and uh, the other bits in the Prose Edda are imagined as dialogues, as wisdom dialogues. So the question is, how did this craft that you call poetry originate? And the person answering here, his name is Bragi, says this. Uh, the origin of it was that the gods had a dispute with the people called Vanir, and they appointed a peace conference and made a truce by this procedure, that both sides went up to a vat and spat their spittle into it. But when they dispersed, the gods kept this symbol of truce and decided not to let it be wasted. And out of it, they made man, out of this spittle. That's an old creation story as well. Um, it's seminal fluid sometimes, uh, a god masturbating, or it's uh, actual spittle, saliva. Um, they made a man out of it. Uh, the man's name was Kavasir. He was so wise that no one could ask him any questions to which he did not know the answer. He traveled widely through the world, teaching people knowledge. And when he arrived as a guest to some dwarfs, Fialar and Galar, they called him to a private discussion with him, and they killed him. They poured his blood into two vats and a pot, and the latter was called Odrir, but the vats were called Son and Boden. They mixed honey with the blood, and it turned into the mead, 
and it turned into the mead that whoever drinks from it becomes a poet or a scholar. Now that shows you even poetry and scholarship, uh, even attaining that uh, is not what we think of poetry and scholarship today, which is going off and putting your head into a book and sort of being uh, uh, passive and, and just sitting around and, uh, and not being active at all. It is a matter of sacrifice and blood. The stuff is important, and by virtue of its importance, it can only be achieved or gotten by means of violence, struggle, or sacrifice. Uh, the dwarves told the Aesir that Kavasir had suffocated in intelligence because there was no one there educated enough to be able to ask him questions. Uh, then these dwarves invited to stay with them a giant called Geeling and his wife. Then the dwarves invited Geeling to go out uh, to the sea in a boat with them. But as they went along the coast, the dwarves rowed out onto a shoal and the boat capsized. Geeling could not swim and was drowned, but the dwarves righted their boat and rowed to land. They told his wife what had happened, and she was greatly distressed and wept loudly. Then Fialar asked her if it would be some consolation for her if she looked out to the sea where he had drowned, and she agreed. Then he told his brother Galar that he was going to go up above the doorway where she was going out and drop a millstone on her head and declared that he was weary of her howling. Her, we were weeping over her husband. He's tired of it. And so Galar did so. When Geeling's son Sutung found out about this, he went there and seized the dwarves and took them out to sea and put them on a scary below high water level. They begged Sutung for quarter and offered him as atonement and compensation for his father the very precious mead that they have, and they were reconciled on these terms. So now Sutung has the mead. Sutung took the mead home with him and put it for safekeeping in a place called Hnitbjorg, setting his daughter Gunnlod in charge of it. That is why we call poetry Kavasir's blood, or dwarf's drink, or the contents of some term for liquid, of Odrir, or Boden, or Sun, or the dwarf's transportation, because this mead brought them deliverance from the scary, or Sutung's mead, or the liquid of Hnitbjorg. And then the second question comes. I think it is an obscure way to talk, to call poetry by these names. Indeed, even back then, they're like, um, you might want to simplify things. Um, it's complicated to talk about poetry by these names. But how did the Aesir get a hold of Sutun's mead? And the reply is this. And here's the story of Odin. Uh, there is this story about it that Odin set out from home and came to where nine slaves were mowing hay. He asked if they would like him to hone their scythes, and they said yes. Then he took a whetstone from his belt and honed, and they thought the scythes were cutting very much better, and asked if they could buy the whetstone from Odin. The price he set on it was that he who wished to buy must give what was reasonable for it, and they all said that they wanted it, and they bade it to sell it to them. But he threw the whetstone up into the air, and when they all tried to catch it, 
They all dealt each other in such a way that they cut each other's throats with sighs. This is, I suppose, the reservoir dog scene um, in the Old Norse. Um, Odin sought lodging for the night. There's no comment on uh, whether Odin enjoyed this or whether he's happy with what he just did. Um, this is Odin causing strife, and that's the other thing that he does. There's a sense that, that powerful things, right, powerful experiences, warfare, poetry, creativity, uh, magic, these things by themselves, they are, um, they are outside of the natural order, and they necessarily do cause strife. That is, what, that is their job, almost. Um, Odin sought lodging for the night with a giant called Balgi, Sutung's brother, and here come the, uh, and here come here here he comes to the story. Uh, Baugi reckoned his economic affairs were going badly, and said that his nine slaves had all killed each other, and he declared that he did not know where he was going to get workmen from. Odin told him that his name was Bolverk, and he offered to take over the work of the nine men for Baugi, and stipulated as his payment one drink from Sutung's mead. This has all been just a way for Odin to get near the mead of poetry. Uh, Baugi said that he had no say in the disposal of the mead, and that Sutung wanted to have it all to himself. But he said that he would go with Bolverk to try whether they could get the mead. Bolverk did the work of nine men for Baugi during the summer. And when winter came, he asked Baugi for his hire. Then they both set off. Baugi told his brother Sutung of his agreement with Bulverk, but Sutung flatly refused to give him a single drop of the mead. Then Bulverk told Baugi that they would have to try some stratagems to see if they could get a hold of the mead, and Baugi said that was a good idea. Then Bulverk got out an auger called Rati and instructed Baugi to bore a hole into the mountain if the auger would cut, and he did so. Then Baugi said that the mountain was bored through, but Bolverk blew into the auger hole and bits flew back up at him, not all the way through. Then he realized that Baugi was trying to cheat him and told him to bore all the way through the mountain, please. Baugi bored again, and when Bolverk blew a second time, the bits flew inward, so he finally uh, did what he was told. Uh, then Bolverk turned himself into the form of a snake. So this is Odin. Uh, changing himself. Um, he's already uh, already using another name, and now he is changing his form as well. And of course, changing your name is not just uh, any old thing either. That is something that had great power to it as well. Um, as we'll hear, and I think as I've already said, Odin had upwards of 170 different names if you want to talk about accretion. Um, he turned himself into the form of a snake and crawled into the auger hole and Baugi stabbed after him with the auger and missed him. Bulverk went to where Gunlud was, the sister who was guarding the mead, and he lay with her for three nights, and then she let him get three draughts of the mead, drink three draughts of the mead. In the first draught he drank everything out of Odrarir, and the second out of Bodin, and the third out of Sun, and then he had all of the mead, sort of, sort of all in his mouth. And then he turned himself into the form of an eagle. There he goes. And uh, the question of the Lord of the Rings comes up here as well. Why didn't he just uh, turn himself into an eagle in the first place? 
but that isn't why these stories are fun. He turned himself into the form of an eagle and flew as hard as he could. And when Sutung saw the eagle's flight, he got his own eagle shape and flew after him. And when the Aesir saw Odin flying, they put their containers out into the courtyard. And when Odin came over Asgard, he spat out the mead into the containers. But it was such a close thing for him that Suttung might have caught him that he sent some of the mead out backwards, and this was disregarded. You can't uh, read one of these old Norse stories without having a joke about shit or piss. Um, anyone took of it what they wanted, and it is what we call the rhymester's share. But Odin gave Suttung's mead to the Aesir, and to those people who are skilled at composing poetry. Thus, we call poetry Odin's booty, and find, and his drink, and his gift, and the Aesir's drink. So how many people had to die? How many people had to uh, sort of um, be tortured or, uh, or mourn? Um, how many different forms did you have to change yourself into? Um, how many stratagems had to... Uh, be taken up uh, to retrieve the mead that is required for magic and poetry and storytelling. And you can imagine without, um, without uh, movies about all of this, what a great roller coaster that uh, all the twists and turns of that would have been in the hands of a proper storyteller back in the day. But let's end this section on Odin and poetry with these passages from the same books that I mentioned earlier. Um, the first of them says this, the story of Odin's conquest of the Mead is not told in any of the skaldic poems, but many of the skalds allude to poetry as the gods' possession, their theft, or their gift. And it says uh, here that there's uh, a great um, parallel in uh, the, the myths of India, of Hinduism, and here is the link that I'll end with, with the great Indo-European heritage that stretches from India to Iran and all the way uh, through Europe and up to Ireland. Um, and it mentions that in India, drunkenness, unless the result of Soma, which is their sacred drink, their sacred drink of poetry and vision. Um, in India, drunkenness, unless it is the result of Soma, may be considered evil. But in Scandinavia, the ecstatic states produced by alcohol and poetry are holy, taking their place in ritual and even bringing men into communion with the gods. It says that the Indian version of all of this, Soma, gives strength to gods and men, but especially to Indra, the uh, Hindu god Indra. Indra, filled with Soma, conquered the monster Ritra, and fortified with it, he performed many a mighty feat. The Soma was brought from heaven to Indra, and it is frequently told in the Rigveda, which is about 1500 BC, so you can see how old the story of a, uh, a theft of a drink uh, of vision and poetry is by an eagle. It is frequently told in the Rigveda that it was brought by an eagle, and the eagle, according to one passage, broke into a fortress of iron to see Soma, and a fortress of iron is usually um, just another way of saying uh, mountain, which is what Odin did. Uh, as noted by another scholar, the myths of the Soma and the Mead must derive from a common source way, way back when and be a part of 
Indo-European heritage. But, and this is what I'll end with here, um, why am I starting this episode talking about Odin and poetry when, uh, at least popularly, he is thought of as being the god of the dead, the god of warfare, and all the rest of it? Um, why, as we will hear, uh, is there not much evidence of Odin being worshipped in Iceland after it is founded uh, around the turn of the year 1000? Um, why do stories of Odin persist in that case um, when all of this is true? And uh, this is the wonderful response, and I like this. Um, considering that Odin is named as the main god of Nordic mythology in Old Norse literary sources, and particularly by Snorri Sturluson in the 11th or in the... Uh, 12th and 13th centuries. Uh, it is perhaps surprising that in comparison with the god Thor, there are only a few indications of a cult veneration of Odin during the, during the 130 years between the settlement of Iceland and the end of heathendom. Uh, there are neither place names nor personal names which could point to a cult of Odin, and the relatively few myths that are told about Odin would not suggest that Odin was actually a chief god. Indeed, it seems that the literary sources considered him to have such an elevated position from their own point of view, since there can be no doubt that Odin was the god of poetry and of poets. And our sources, which come either directly or indirectly via Snorri's, Snorri Sturluson's systemization from the skalds of heathen times, not surprisingly, they show a particular inclination in favor of the god of their own craft. So there you have it. The reason that we have all of this stuff about Odin now is because he was regarded as the god of poetry and the people who were uh, the keepers of those and other stories were poets. It is their bias. That is what they do. And now, let's see what we have. Let us get into this next section and talk more about Odin and his more uh, wrathful and warlike aspect, and also get more into how he is able to change his shape into other various animals. One moment here. So let's get back to Odin and discuss his associations with war and death, and just in general with strife. I think we can handle this a little more briskly than we did the section on the poets, but it is important to see. You think of Loki as being the trickster of Norse myth, and in general, the trickster stories around the world the trickster is usually the one without power, or at least with without the official power. Odin, however, has apparently the official power, so it would be wrong to call him a trickster for the things that he does and the things that we're about to read. And it seems that what he's doing is something more diabolical uh, and more sinister, and perhaps that will come out in the readings that I'm about to do right now. 
Uh, these again come from the books that I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, and you can find links to them and their titles uh, in the post description. The first is just a description of Odin's name. Odin's name is etymologically related to the Old Norse Oder, or the German Wut, which means fury, or the Gothic Wodes, which means possessed, which alludes to the poetic cult frenzy, which was a characteristic of this god and his cult. Non-Germanic etymological parallels can also be found in the Latin Vatus and the Old Irish Fath, or Seer. So right away there, you see that uh, the whole uh, range of what we've been discussing is right there. Fury, possession, but also uh, religious cult, poetic cult, uh, being a seer and a prophet, and all the rest of it. These things are all tied together. Um, another passage says that Odin was a god of war, and it was in his interest to promote strife. This is what I was getting at when I started here. His interest was to promote strife. For this reason, poets called him Hniknar or Hniknur, names which probably imply the one who incites to battle. In another poem, Odin is made to boast that he had always incited princes against each other and never made peace between them. We might expect the northern god of war to be noble, valiant, and an example to every soldier, but Odin was far from that. According to the sources in which he is most fully described, he was evil and sinister. He delighted especially in fratricidal strife and in conflict between kinsmen. It is told in another poem how uh, the character Dag sacrificed to Odin, who lent him a spear, with which was used to kill his sister's husband, Helgi. And that's kind of the kernel of it, isn't it? Uh, Odin prefers to incite princes against each other and to never make peace uh, between them. There's This reminds me of one of my favorite passages about the God of the Hebrew Bible, and this comes from an incredible book on the writing of the Hebrew Bible and also the Talmud, and at the very end of it, of the Christian New Testament. But very early on, when you're talking about the uh, Jewish scribes putting together the Torah in the 500s or so BC, after they've been exiled to Babylon, this is a, this is a wonderful paragraph, this is it. Uh, the reason that the God of the ancient Israelites is so convincing is that as he is limbed in the covenant, he is the perfect embodiment of what is reality. Whatever controls the lives of individual human beings, and there is an infinity of philosophical debate about such matters, it is not consistently nice, benevolent, predictable, or even understandable. Yahweh, in the stories, personifies that ultimate reality exactly. Life is bounteous, so is Yahweh. Life is unfair, so too is Yahweh. Just ask Job. Yahweh is the name for reality, invented by Hebrew religious geniuses who paid attention to the way that the world works. I'll read that last sentence again. Yahweh is the name for reality, 
invented by Hebrew religious geniuses who paid attention to the way the world works, the way the world actually is experienced, not the way we want it to be experienced, not the way we wish, really, really wish that it could be experienced, but the way it actually is. There's that uh, sort of tiresome cliche, the loving God of the New Testament and the wrathful God of the Hebrew Bible. Well, if we look at it in this way, uh, it seems more realistic. It seems at least that way to me. And if we think about this in the case of Odin, for the Norse, Odin is the name for reality invented by Norse religious geniuses who paid attention to the way the world works. Odin is an expression of how they believed the world actually was. Um, the world is brutal. At least in the Hebrew Bible, there is the sense of, uh, of God calling prophets to help people, of God um, inspiring people to be good and uh, to find a way to deal with how reality actually is. There is the image of Moses. I guess Moses is the one to hold on the other side of Odin. Uh, Moses is the prophet and the seer, but he doesn't have time to go into these trances or to sacrifice himself to himself to find runes or wisdom. God gives him the wisdom that he needs because he isn't just a prophet. He is also an administrator. He is also having to deal with the Israelite people on the ground day to day all the time. He doesn't have uh, the ability to do what Odin does, which is basically, you might say, a selfish act. Uh, the, the very illuminating lines in the Havamal, he sacrifices himself to himself. You don't really see Odin going around and uh, being nice to other people and trying to help them or being forced into that relationship either. Um, the only person he seems to really love is his uh, son, Balder, whose funeral he goes to, and then he goes down to the underworld, to hell, to ask what this death, the death of his son, all means. And so it's worth thinking about Odin in that way. He is the ultimate expression of what the Norse believed about uh, reality itself, and that is that reality is not kind. Reality is not about uh, reconciling princes. Reality seems to be about actually pitting princes against each other, about pitting everybody against each other. And here we are uh, with a discussion uh, that keeps going here about warriors. The 10th century skaldic poetry, in the 10th century skaldic poetry, Odin is frequently called the guardian of warriors, and the god of those slain in battle. He is also said to be the god of the Einarjar, whom he gathers around himself in Valhalla so that they can support him at Ragnarok in the battle against the forces of the underworld. The Valkyries, who are known as Odin's maidens, are the ones who fetch the slain from the battlefield and lead them to Valhalla, where they attend to their needs. Valhalla takes on the characteristics of a warrior paradise, sort of. And if you have a copy of the Prose Edda, you can go to chapters 38 to 41, and there is a long, lush description 
of what goes on in Valhalla. I don't think there's a need to read that here, because what I'm about to read sums it up fairly well. And it says this, uh, The skaldic poets have little to say about Valhalla, and their allusions to it are generally obscure. The only detailed descriptions of it are to be found in the poet Grimnismal, which is in the Poetic Edda, and in Snorri's Gilfeginning, as I said, chapters 38 to 41, which is based mainly on those stanzas from the Grimnismal, stanzas 8 to 10 and 23 to 26. And this is what it says, or this is a summary of what it says. Uh, Valhalla stands in the world of joy. Its rafters are spear shafts, and the tiles are shields, as was known already by one of Harold Finehair's poets, I believe in the 9th or 10th century. A wolf lurked to the west of the entrance, and an eagle hovered over the building. There Odin dwelt with his wolves, Gary and Freki, and his ravens, Hugin and Munin, who fly over the world every day. And in fact, as we'll, as we'll see, Odin seems to have the closest relationships with these animals that he is associated with, and these animals that he is sort of able to change his shapes into when he needs to. Uh, Odin lives on wine alone, and you might think that there is a connection there with blood. Uh, Odin lives on wine alone, but the fallen warriors feast on the flesh of a boar called Heyhrimnir, which, according to Snorri, is stewed every day and arises whole every evening. The warriors drink the liquor which flows from the udders of a goat called Heidrun, nourished by the foliage of the tree Lathrathur. These warriors fight each other in the courts every day, but in the evening they sit together at peace. And indeed, doesn't that sound like paradise? Um, you can eat uh, a boar that is replenished every day, and you can go out and fight and become replenished at the end of the day as well. And this is the first time in putting the notes together for this episode, this is the first time I've really even considered or become aware of the idea that the warriors that Odin gathers to himself in Valhalla are even meant to help him at Ragnarok. When you get to the descriptions of Ragnarok, Odin is kind of by himself and then he is killed. Um, I don't really get a sense uh, that, that these dead warriors are helping him. And my, my previous idea of, of Valhalla was of warriors who uh, want to go to Valhalla. But when you read more and more of this stuff, it seems to be that uh, what Odin is actually doing is he is just gathering any, any old warrior, any old uh, soldier who happens to die in battle. They are taken to him. Um, whether they want to or not seems to be the idea. And that uh, what he does is that he is just kind of enthralled um, with death, that war and warfare and battle and warriors and soldiers, um, they are just meat for his grinder, you might say. Um, they are just going to him because that is what he does. He gathers death and blood and suffering to himself. But then there's this interesting thing that one of the scholars says. The description of Valhalla that I just read to you as this hall where people are fighting all the time and where 
uh, an eagle hovers over the building and a wolf lurks to the west of the entrance. Uh, the description of Valhalla that we have has more to do with uh, art motifs than with popular belief. The splendid picture is not free from foreign influences. The glorious hall is modeled on a royal palace, but such palaces were not to be found in Scandinavia in the heathen age. Jacob Grimm of Grimm's Fairy Tales observed that, according to a chronicler of the 10th century, Charles the Great had, a, had set up a flying eagle of bronze on the roof of his palace, and later scholars have carried the comparison with European architecture even further, and one of them sees Valhalla, as described in the Eddas, as a reflection of a Roman amphitheater, how about that, or even of the Colosseum itself, which a Scandinavian traveler had had a chance to see when he went to Rome, because there, of course, in the Colosseum, warriors fight day in and day out, and the building has many doors, just like Valhalla, and the emperor, presiding in the high seat, might correspond with Odin, presiding at Valhalla. And actually, they don't mention it here, but you wonder if the, uh, the warriors feasting on the flesh of the boar, which um, is stewed every day and rises whole in the evening in this cauldron, isn't itself a kind of uh, borrowing of a very early idea of what the Holy Grail uh, was able to do. Not a grail or a cup, but the idea of a dish or a cauldron, as it would have been. And then it says, now we're moving on to Odin's relations to, to death and the gallows and people who have been hanged, because once you have the idea of Odin sacrificing himself and hanging from a tree, uh, it's not a far stretch to imagine that anyone who is hanging in the gallows is somehow associated with Odin in some sort of a grim way. And it says Odin's relations with the gallows and their victims is complicated. When he made the hanged men talk, or sat down beneath them, he was clearly in quest of occult wisdom, which belongs only to the dead, just as he was when he woke up dead men, such as when he went down to the gates of hell after his son died. And this ties into the idea of reality itself, as I mentioned, Odin being a representation of reality itself. If you remember my episodes way back when on Osiris and ancient Egypt, and the mistake that people fall into that uh, Egypt is death-obsessed, that's why they build these pyramids, that's why they have these spells that the dead are supposed to speak, um, to uh, go on to the other world that is in the sky or elsewhere. Um, when in reality, what the Egyptians are obsessed with is life, trying to, trying to continue life. They're not obsessed with death. They're obsessed with how good life can be, and they don't want it to end. It appears that it's the Norse, actually, who are obsessed with death. Uh, death is brutal. Death comes at the hands of betrayal and warfare and a sort of, uh, if you read the family sagas, a sort of mafia-like situation, Sopranos up in Iceland, of just blood feuds, of people killing each other and then killing each other for killing this person, and on and on. There's, there's no end to it. And it appears that these are the ones who are obsessed with death. And so they sort of fetishize death, and they come to believe 
that maybe uh, death is this way. It is so prevalent and so brutal and so awful, and it is associated with poetry and warfare and vision and all of these extremely important things. Maybe it's because the dead know things that the living do not. And there's this, this great emphasis on that, that there are certain things that only the dead can know. And then we come to his association with animals, with his ravens and with his uh, horse, Sleipnir, which I don't think we've had a chance to talk about much here. But let's check out what it says about uh, his associations with with his ravens, Hugin and Munin, and how that all connects in with warfare and death as well. Uh, it says, since Hugin was the name of one raven, it could, in poetic language, be applied to every raven. And examples of this usage are found in very early poetry. Uh, one poet called blood Hugin's sea, and another poet called it the raven's drink. The warrior, the warrior who was dead on the battlefield, is called the reddener of Hugin's claws, or of the reddener of Hugin's bill. And a simple kenning for battle was Hugin's feast. In the name of the other raven, Munin, the name of Munin is used in the same way, although rather less commonly. The relationship between Odin and the raven is old and deep. And as it says, the, the ravens sit on Odin's shoulders and they go off in the morning uh, around the world and they come back and they tell Odin news about what, what is going on in the world. Um, as is shown by numerous kennings, both for Odin and for the raven. Odin is called the raven god, the raven tempter, and more strangely, the priest of the raven sacrifice. In another poem, the ravens are Odin's greedy hawks. And in the Skaldic language, it was more usual to substitute one of Odin's other names so that the raven was Yig's seagull, or his swan, or even his cuckoo. Many have wondered what is the foundation of Odin's relationship with the raven, but no answer can be given. The raven is a bird of death because he feeds on corpses, and poets call the raven the corpse goose, the corpse cuckoo, and by many other kennings which have a similar meaning. Uh, for such reasons, the raven was called the blood swan, the blood goose, the wound grouse, and he was also the osprey of the spear storm, and the battle swallow, and the battle crane, and on and on. Uh, Odin has many names and many functions, and eventually the things that he is associated with, in this case, ravens, uh, becomes associated just with birds in general. Uh, now his horse Sleipnir. The horse and his phallus are well-known symbols of fertility, but anything associated with fertility, as we know from the case of Osiris as well, um, it's just the flip side. If you're associated with fertility, you are also associated with death. If you're associated with death, as is the case with, with Jesus, you are also associated with resurrection and renewal. That is just how it goes. And you also actually remember, uh, if you've seen David Lynch's movie Fire Walk With Me, right before Laura Palmer is killed, what appears in her bedroom is just a beautiful uh, white horse. And if we look at archaeology, it says the hundreds of horses found buried in graves throughout Scandinavia 
about 16 of them in the Hosberg and the Osberg grave alone, suggest close, a close association between horses and death. The stately horses depicted on the Osberg tapestries, some of them mounted and others drawing chariots, may well be carrying their charges to the other world. And Hakon the Good, according to a poem composed in his memory, seems to ride to Valhalla on a horse. And both Odin and his son Hermod rode on Sleipnir to the world of death after, um, after Baldur's funeral. And the stone called Tjangvid in Gotland, probably of the 8th century, shows a mounted horse which appears to have eight legs, as Sleipnir is said to have. This may well be an image of Odin riding Sleipnir, but it is no less likely that the eight legs were just intended to give the impression of the horse's speed of it, of it moving. In this case, the tradition that Sleipnir, the swiftest of horses, had eight legs may just derive from pictorial motifs of this kind. And finally, as I mentioned earlier, Odin might be able to take the form of a serpent, a raven, an eagle, a horse, and a wolf and he probably assumed other forms besides these. Odin's assumption of the wolf shape may also lead us to think of the huge tradition of lycanthropy or werewolves about which legends are preserved over so great a part of Europe and down to Greece. In fact, the man who put on wolf skin probably felt himself to be a wolf and a berserk, the berserkers of Odin, those, um, those warriors clothed in bear skin thought that he was a bear. Uh, berserks were also sometimes just called wolf-skinned, and they howled like wolves. And let me read this one last passage here, and then we will move on to the archaeology and history of what we can find out about Odin. Here we are. The heroes of the Volsung Saga, who are typical Odin heroes, lived in the forest as wolves, and as a bronze plate found in Torslunda at Oland in Sweden, and probably dating from the 6th century, what does it show? It shows a figure with a wolf's head, skin and tail, but with human feet. And what does the figure carry but that object which is associated with Odin from very ancient times? He carries a spear. So let's put Odin to bed now by looking at a few passages from archaeology and history to get a better idea of where Odin comes from and how long he may have been hanging around. And the first passage comes from around the year AD 98. This is from the Roman historian Tacitus in his Germania, where he is writing about the Germanic tribes. And he says about those tribes that among the gods, Mercury is the one that they principally worship. They regard it as a religious duty to offer to him, on fixed days, human as well as other sacrificial victims. And of course what he's doing here is what many classical historians do. When they're writing about the gods of other peoples, they don't use the names of those gods, they use what for them might be uh, a good or just a sort of vague equivalent 
uh, in the Latin pantheon. So in this case, it's Mercury. And it says, in general, these tribes judge it not to be in keeping with the majesty of heavenly beings to confine them within walls or to portray them in any human likeness. They consecrate woods and groves, and they apply the names of gods to that mysterious presence which they see only with the eye of devotion. So already at this time, the god that we identify as Odin is uh, one of principal worship. Uh, he is given human sacrifices, whereas other gods are only given probably animal sacrifices. And the worship of these gods, not just of Odin, uh, takes place out of doors. And I think this is something that remains pretty stable for a very long time. And the footnote to that passage from Tacitus simply says that the German Mercury was, of course, Wotan, Woden, or Odin, as is shown by the coincidence of Woden's Day, or Wednesday, with the middle of the week uh, Mercury's Day in the Roman calendar. The messenger of the gods in the classical system had not all that much in common otherwise with the somewhat awesome god of wind and storm. But Odin also conducted the spirits of the dead, a role which Mercury acquired from his Greek counterpart, Hermes. And let's see what else it says. Uh, it's talking some more about uh, in the first centuries AD, uh, the connection of Woden and Odin to the Germanic and the, the Roman gods. They point to clear parallels and the understanding of the essence of these gods in the first centuries AD. External attributes of Odin include his staff and his hat, as well as the role, as well as his role as the wandering god, and perhaps as well the god of traitors, were all determining factors, but they were not, however, sufficient reason alone for considering the two gods, Mercury and Odin, to be one and the same within two different cultures. Uh, Tacitus reported that, that the Germanic peoples only made human sacrifice to Mercury, that is Odin, whereas other gods received animal sacrifices. He was also informed already about the high rank that Odin took among the Germanic peoples, a position which is hardly comparable to that of the god Mercury among the Romans, which is only to say that perhaps sometimes the comparison that is made is just uh, is imperfect. Um, in many ways. Now we're talking about the migration period where there is evidence uh, for Odin in uh, personal ornamentation. The pictorial material is far more substantial and circumspect about Odin during the migration period. One scholar has been able to show in a number of studies that there is a depiction of Odin in the pictures of gods on the golden bractriates of group C, a god's head over a four-legged animal, which form the largest group of gold bracteates, which number about 400 examples. This is clearly Odin, as the god depicted is also accompanied by birds, most likely his two ravens, on the one hand, and on the other this god is shown to have a distinct medical function on the other, back perhaps when Odin had a more healing aspect to him. And now we're back to the, the issue of place names. And we come to the point of uh, place names in Sweden, Denmark, and then Iceland. 
And usually you can see just how important a god might be uh, by seeing how many place names uh, come from the god's name and how many people are naming their children something like the god's name. And this is what it says. Place names containing the name Odin are not found in Iceland at all, not one. Uh, and they are seldom found in South Norway, but they are more frequent in Sweden and Denmark. This has been interpreted as meaning that Odin's cult in Scandinavia was comparatively young, spreading from southern Germanic parts during the Viking Age, and that it was unable to extend far enough in order to reach Iceland before it was overtaken by Christianity around the year 1000. Among the place names based on Odin are a number which are clearly ancient, and these contradict the theory that devotion to Odin was a young development there. In the whole of Tacitus's Germania, it is clear from the standard translation of the Latin weekday name of Mercury's Day with the Germanic Wednesday, uh, because since the translation of weekday names was concluded by the 4th century, the cult centering on Odin must have been very widespread in all of Western and probably Northern Germanic regions by at least the 4th century. So we have Tacitus going back to about AD 98, and you can imagine what is going on even before then, before there are Roman historians and people wandering around deciding to write about all of this. Now we get to the, the question, though, um, given all of that evidence, uh, why are there so few place names, uh, including Odin in Iceland, and still some, but not quite as many f as there are for Thor in Sweden and Denmark and Norway? And this sort of gets to the crux of where we are, because the answer given here takes us up to the period, perhaps the 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries, when this material that we know from the prose Edda and the poetic Edda begin to be solidified and are eventually written down. And what it imagines is that, uh, for instance, the, the uh, example they give is of a king in Norway by the name of Harald, who is doing a great number of things that the people living in Norway do not like. And these are the people who end up leaving Norway to settle Iceland. So what, they, what this writer has to say is, is that Odin, in this case, is more of a god of kingship, and as we've said earlier, of war and of death. Uh, Odin is not the, uh, his cult is not the cult of landowners or of the hereditary aristocracy bound by ties of blood. Odin's is the cult of landless men and those without family ties. That's very important. Um, of soldiers of fortune and, of course, of berserks who join the king's court in hope of gain. Uh, these people have little interest in agriculture, uh, little interest in living, and, and they live chiefly on meat and milk. Uh, no, one, no one of these groups was allowed to own land but the land was parceled out every year by the chieftains among tribes and families. At the end of the year, they must move elsewhere. And it says that uh, this right here, what I've just described, is the antithesis of the system based on family units, which the settlers introduced when they arrived in Iceland. 
but it has close affinities with the social system as described in the poem Beowulf, and prevailing among the Gaitas or the Gotar, and especially among the Danes. So well, let's keep reading this, the rest of these passages here. Um, it could be said that the name Odin was purposely avoided in some districts because the god was revered so deeply as to be unmentionable. But based on what I just said, there is a more natural explanation. If those in the western districts knew Odin, they had neither respect for him as a god, nor any love for all that he stood for. As I mentioned earlier uh, in the section on death and warfare, if we imagine that what Odin represents is someone who brings strife into the world, not sort of comic trickery like Loki could do, uh, but actual uh, harm to the world, um, we can imagine why people who want to farm their land and raise their families um, would not want to have anything to do with this God. And I think that's the explanation that makes the most sense to me. Uh, the distribution of Odin names in Scandinavia has been explained variously. Many have seen it as evidence that Odin was not indigenous to Scandinavia, as we've said before, and that his cult had spread from the south. According to some, this cult reached the north around 200 to 400 AD, and others have given it an even later date, while some have believed that Odin was little known in Scandinavia before the Viking Age, which is about the 800s or so. While there is no compelling evidence that the cult of Odin was practiced widely in the West before the Viking Age, there are reasons to believe that it spread and developed during that time. It has been said already that a few of the settlers appear that few of the settlers appear to have venerated Odin. They were a conservative people who emigrated largely to preserve their traditional way of life, ruled by farmers of leading families, independent of kings and central government. Their social units and their loyalties were based upon blood relationship. This is just reiterates what we already heard. These settlers were mostly men of western and particularly southwestern Norway. They venerated Thor, Njord, Freyr, but seemed to have paid little heed at all to Odin. And now I think we have a good idea of quite why. And finally, we, so we begin with the idea of a god, of a supreme being, who is known for his hat and his staff and his one eye and his sacrificing himself to himself. He helps create human beings. He is there at the end of the world where he dies. At some point, there is almost nothing that he is unable to do. But then, in Iceland and in Norway and in the rest of Scandinavia, all of these places become Christianized. They all convert. So what happens to the stories of the gods? I mentioned the, uh, the scholarly word euhemerization, and that is what happens to Odin, and this is just a passage about that. Uh, and this is when the gods just become interpreted in a new way as basically being uh, great human beings, but basically just heroes, not as divinities. It says, a, a euhemeristic interpretation of the gods occurs in the tale of the migration of the Aesir during the rule of their king Odin, as it is told somewhat variedly in Snorri's Prose Edda, the Yinglinga Saga, and in Saxo Grammaticus's 
gesta denorum. The generally accepted opinion among scholars in Iceland of the 12th and 13th centuries, and this is the time that Snorri would have been writing, was that the gods were, quote, long dead kings and priests, well versed in sorcery, who were mortal men, but who possessed magical powers and instruments. They allowed themselves to be worshipped as gods, but their supernatural deeds were, in fact, mere illusion. And so this is the point of view of people living during the time of Snorri Sturluson. And, and this is also just what happens to the Celtic gods as well, as we mentioned in the very last episode on the Celtic myths. And the question comes again, though, um, if this is the point where you end up at, if you begin 1500 BC and even back further with these stories that kind of roll forward and, uh, and just gather more and more material as it goes uh, around India and Iran, uh, across Eastern, Western Europe, and then eventually into Britain, Northern Europe, Iceland, uh, and all the rest of it. If you eventually end up with the idea of very human uh, gods and your, your uh, heathen religion has been replaced with the monotheism of Christianity, you have to wonder what propelled these people, what compelled them to preserve the stories in the first place. We can see, if you look at a copy of the Yinglinga saga, and the Heimskringla, all the sagas that are in there, you can see that the gods are euhemerized completely. As it says here, Odin is basically a king, and he is migrating like a proper Germanic uh, tribe, you might say, uh, to find a settling place uh, in Europe. Um, but why then would someone like Snorri, and why would these skalds before him and during his lifetime uh, why would they decide to still hold on and record the stories of these individuals uh, when they were conceived of as gods, when they were conceived of as powers in the universe that uh, helped create the world and would be there at the end of it all? And I, And my suggestion would be is that they still held some sort of magnetic power. I think it's the reason why I am still fascinated by these stories, why anyone listening to this episode or who picks up a book on uh, Norse mythology or any mythology really is still caught by this material because there is still a kernel of it somehow that communicates something in our minds, in our hearts, that is very deeply convincing, very deeply powerful and you don't want to let go of things like that, even if you're not going to believe this stuff literally, whatever that means. You still want to hold on to it because it feels genuine, it feels powerful, it feels important. And just in an historical sense, it gives you a sense of a feeling of, I don't know, camaraderie or just a great link in the huge chain of what people have believed about the transcendent or the divine or just the merely uh, psychologically weighty that has gone on in the world. It is a great, the story of Odin and what happened 
to him and how he was conceived and pictured and lived with is just one of the great tapestries throughout the world that we can study to understand how human beings have gotten along in the world. And the other thing too, I think, is that simply the poetry and the stories um, have their own intrinsic power as well. They grab you by the neck, they grab you by the throat, they kick you in the ass. Um, they were the equivalent of me trying to think that I was being funny and cute in high school, doing a report on Iceland, and suddenly realizing, holy shit, look at these stories. And so I will end this episode as I began it with uh, that wonderful stanza from the Havamal, and we will leave Odin here. And I thank you all for listening, whoever it is who has lasted to the very end. Let's look at Odin's sacrifice one more time. He says, I know that I hung on that windy tree, spear-wounded, nine full nights, given to Odin, myself to myself, on that tree that rose from roots that no man ever knows. They gave me neither bread nor drink from horn. I peered below. I clutched the runes, screaming. I grabbed them and then sank back. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.